Welcome to another episode of SG Explained. This is the post-National Day Parade episode. Elliot, did you watch the parade? Hey, dude, I watched the whole thing. I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but I've never sat through the entirety of a National Day Parade. And this year, because my wife's in Singapore, I actually sat through the entire thing. Oh, it was like a patriotic education kind of thing, is it? Something like that. She, she was just like, I want to compare National Days, you know? Then I was like, okay, cool, let's... Let's see, and then she was like, hmm, this seems very uh, militant. And I was like, I'm sure all of them are pretty militant in their own way. But I, I had lots of fun. Honestly, it was a very different style of NDP. I, I wrote the show uh, for 2013, I think. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I wrote the National Day show for 2013. What, what an astounding show this year, despite the circumstances. And uh, I have to say, man, I have to say, uh, President Halima looking good still, looking good still. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, today we are on a financial episode, I would say, because we haven't done a finance episode in a while. Elliot, you and I, were not really finance bros. It used to be Willie's kind of cup of tea. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a reason. Look at me as a human being and tell me you will come to me for financial advice. Zero out of ten people. You're a very trustable character, so you know maybe there's merit there. Uh, and as much as you like to say that without Willie, we'd be able to talk about finance. I think it's better to bring in someone who has a bit more experience, which is why we have a special guest for our episode today. We have Reggie Co from the Financial Coconut Podcast, which is Singapore's first financial literacy podcast. Uh, Reggie, thanks for coming on our show. <laughs> Welcome. Woo! Hey guys. <laughs> It's nice, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's really fun to be on other people's show and not always uh, be on the host seat, right? Because there's a whole different element, you know, when you're sitting on the host level and it's just nice being guest. And as for what we do on personal finance, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's, <laughs> you know like... Uh, yeah, you know. Spiel, just do it. Yeah, you know, like I'm so tired of... <laughs> you know, it's, no, it's because, you know, it's like you, you always talk about personal finance and then you go into other people's show. People still want you to talk about personal finance. And I'm like, you know, why don't someone just show me for a makan show or something? You know, like I wanna, I wanna talk about something else. I have so much more than just a finance guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've been boxed in, I've been boxed in. But yes, we are, we are the first. You know, at the point in time, I think we started in 2019, late 2019, and yeah, we we're born out of the pandemic, right? Everybody was staying home, and your know, people were having more capacity to kind of figure out their personal finance. So we cover all sorts of topics, right? From basic personal finance stuff, some uh, tips on how to save, you know. A little bit about CPF investing, different different kind of investment tools, and I reach a point where I ran out of things to say, and I started bringing other guests on. <laughs> so, so yeah, we have all these other experts coming on to just kind of share their perspectives, share their views, and um, just kind of do a lot of explainers and try to break down different different uh, stuff for our audience. Yeah, that's about it, man. Yeah, if you guys haven't checked them out, please go over. You'll be in for a real treat. Trust me. I think my personal finances. When I come to thinking about it, uh, it's been enriched by what uh, Reggie has been doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, we just did a guest swap too. Yes, yes. We went on your show to talk about SG Explain style, like myth busting. Today's episode, we're actually not talking about personal finance. We're going to give you a break from that. Uh, we're going to talk about big F finance and about how Singapore is a financial hub and what that even means, right? One could say that the financial coconut is an online financial hub for knowledge. Oh, big claims there, big claims there. Yeah, big, claims. <laughs> big claims there. We are trying to grow the library and trying to like expand the repertoire, but I honestly don't dare to say that, you know, that this is the current situation, but yes, yes. Eventually, eventually we'll, we'll get there. And that makes it a good segue to talk about what exactly is a financial hub, because just before we jump into the material I think people have set Singapore as a financial hub for a couple of different reasons, not always great because it has low taxes, because it has a high number of state-owned enterprises or holding companies, right? But those don't actually define a financial hub. Actually, there's a very specific definition. This is SG Explained. We're all about the learning here. <laughs> so what is a financial hub exactly? Uh, a financial center or financial hub usually refers to a city with a strategic location, 
leading financial institutions, reputed stock exchanges, uh, a dense concentration of public and private banks, and trading and insurance companies. Now, in addition, uh, these hubs are equipped with so-called first-class infrastructure, right? Such as communications and commercial systems. And uh, there is transparent and sound legal and regulatory regime backed by a stable political system. Uh, such cities are favorable destinations for professionals because of the high living standards they offer along with immense growth opportunities. So we'll, we'll use this as like the base definition uh, for our discussion today. And from what we're reading here, what we're kind of like uh, discussing, I would say it describes Singapore pretty well. Strategic location. We've always been taught in social studies that, you know, wow, just nicely placed along the streets, la, uh, fishing port, la, all these kind of things where it makes us uh, strategic in location, but also a uh, stable political system. And I think what's interesting is that it doesn't talk about taxes. It doesn't talk about some of the things we tend to associate with a financial hub. I, I mean, we got this from Investopedia, which you know, I would think is a reputable source, but I, I like how it's it's not one thing that defines a financial hub. It's like many different elements. But Reggie, would you add anything to this qualification for a financial hub? I think the first thing I'll question is high living standards. <laughs> <laughs> high, high living standards is relative, right? Relative to cost, relative to quality of life. Like what do you consider like high living standards and all that jazz? How do you say whether a place is a great place to live? I think that's a, a much more needed expanded discussion. Maybe if I say high living standards I say like expensive just put expensive (laughs) it's probably describing a very specific group of people that are enjoying like high living standards right compared to other people who are just like yeah that's just expensive and actually even within the definition of a financial hub there is sort of a taxonomy which I found very interesting so in June 2000 the International Monetary Fund or IMF basically proposed such a taxonomy on global financial centers and there's three big ones the first is an inter National Financial Center, and this is a large full-service center with advanced settlement and payment systems, large domestic economies, deep liquid markets, uh, where the use of funds are diverse, uh, as well as where these financial centers generally borrow short-term from non-residents and then long-term to non-residents. So some of the biggest international financial centers, you have London. Uh, This is the largest one in the world. There's New York. London has a higher proportion of international domestic business. New York has a higher proportion of domestic to international business. Uh, And then Tokyo is also another famous international financial center. Then you have what is called a regional financial center, which have also developed financial markets and infrastructure and intermediate funds. But in contrast to IFCs, they have relatively small domestic economies, and these include Hong Kong, Singapore, Luxembourg. Now, I think we'd be happy to stop there, but there is actually a third category, which I think seems slightly, I would say, pointed in its definition. OFCs, or offshore financial centers, are much smaller than regional financial centers, and they provide specialist services. And the IMF noted that OFCs could be set up for legitimate purposes, but also for dubious purposes. And these dubious purposes <laughs> include tax evasion and money laundering. And it even provided the definition, right? It said an OFC is a country or jurisdiction that provides financial services to non-residents on a scale that is incommensurate with the size and financing of its domestic economy. And there were actually 46 OFCs, the largest of which was Ireland. And then there were places in the Caribbean, like the Cayman Islands and the BVI, which is the British Virgin Islands. Hong Kong, Singapore, and Luxembourg also made its way here because of the definition. And because of this association, right, between Hong Kong, Singapore, Luxembourg, and Cayman Islands and British Virgin Islands, basically people started saying, oh, yeah, these are all like tax haven countries. But I don't think that's necessarily true, right? Offshore financial centers have a very broad definition. Uh, In fact, the IMF even noted that an OFC can be an RFC together. And even within the global financial centers index which is basically the main i guess ranking list that's compiled semi-annually by a london-based think tank in conjunction with a shenzhen-based think tank uh, singapore is ranked sixth in 2020 so you know we're pretty much recognized as a financial center i want to hear your hot take reggie on this singapore's been called a tax haven before i think it's unfair can you maybe give us some insight 
or perspective into how do you think we got this reputation and how are we different from the BVI and Cayman Islands? Yeah, I think the problem with tax haven is over time, it's gotten a, a negative connotation, right? I think when tax havens first started as an idea, it was very positive, right? People were just trying to be more tax efficient. A lot of companies were doing a lot of these things. But the recent 10 years, there's been a lot of discussion of like, oh, all these big companies are not paying taxes and they're hiding money in different places. And tax havens start to have a negative spin on it, right? It feels like these guys are setting up corporate entities in different places and just you know, storing their money there so that they're not taxed or finding ways to bring money into all these places. So I would say Singapore has a reputation for it because there are a lot of people that are setting up you know, companies here, setting up entities here. Um, I mean, there are a lot of Australian companies setting up entities here. It's a pretty international um, situation here in Singapore. But to just put it as a tax haven with this idea that, oh, you know, people are just putting money here and they're not doing anything and they're just trying to hide from tax. Then it's not very fair because there are, there are a lot of things going on in the Singapore uh, financial markets, right? With a lot of family offices here, with a lot of angel investors, a lot of VC setting up here, trying to invest within the region, but boun bouncing off from Singapore, you know, setting up entity here with the financial system because it's easy to transact money. There's a strong legal system and all that jazz. So I don't yeah, think- Yeah, we've got substance. Yes, we have, we have, we definitely have more than just, you know, we're not, we're not an island, you know, with coconut tree, then you just like put money here and then you can go and do your shit elsewhere, right? So <laughs> I think, I think. I, <laughs> so, what a definition. Yeah, what a definition, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So, but, but that's, that's generally the stigmatization and negative uh, tone to tax havens these days, right? But we are a lot more complicated. We have um, a lot of auction houses here. We have, you know, um, you know, all these kind of ports. We have a lot of interesting things here for the rich and the wealthy to put their money, to work with capital and all that jazz. But I think something important to really point out here is that Singapore really depends on foreign capital a lot more than local capital, right? So the local capital, which is why we're not an international financial hub, right? we're only a regional financial hub. And I, I do think the fundamental difference, although the definition is very long, the fundamental difference with the international financial hub is that it's local capital. These people have a lot of technology they've gathered their wealth over the period of time and that's why there's big market and all that jazz. So the money belongs to the people there. You know, whereas uh, regional financial hubs like Singapore, like Hong Kong, is very dependent on other people putting money here and using the facilities, using the infrastructure to, you know, be a little bit more interesting with their capital allocation strategy and what have you, right? So I think that's something to note uh, for a lot of people that are listening and I don't think it's fair to call Singapore a tax haven. Uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of where I see things. That's a great hot take, Reggie. Can I add one more thing? There's a discussion about Ireland, right? So Ireland is a very interesting situation. There are actually a lot of ETFs that set up shop in Ireland. Okay, so for all of you listening, you should go ahead and search this idea called Ireland Domiciled ETFs. So essentially, exchange-traded funds, right? I think more and more people are trying to understand this idea of exchange-traded funds. Essentially, you can buy funds on the exchange. You don't need to go to private arrangement, the banks, the insurance agents, and what have you. So it reduces the cost, makes it easier for everybody. And Ireland Ireland Domicile ETF is an interesting idea because a lot of these fund houses are setting up shop there to make use of tax structures. Right? So this is the part where offshore tax haven becomes a little bit questionable. If you go and look at some of the Ireland Domicile ETFs, hey, they actually are cheaper in fees just because their tax are cheaper. All right? So all these things are very interesting in the global financial situation. Something to definitely go and learn more about. In very SG-explained fashion, I think before we jump into exactly what are the components of Singapore's financial hub, I think it's important to, to trace this route. We're going to go into the Singapore time machine, as we always do, and look at Singapore's origins as a financial center. Oh, this is one of my favorite parts. We're going to look at Singapore's origin, right? And its origin as a financial center can be traced back to, obviously, the colonial route. When Sir Stamford Raffles first established a trading post of the British East India Company on the island in 1819. Uh, Singapore quickly became a major trade entrepot under the British Empire, as well as the British naval base. Now, this early emergence of trade and shipping activities was crucial for the formation of financial services in Singapore. In many instances across the world, the emergence of a financial service sector was often predicated upon the existence of thriving trade flows, with financial services associated with trade and shipping activities, such as like currency exchange, uh, shipping insurance, maritime finance, giving rise to other related financial services. 
This was most certainly the case for Singapore. Now, strategically located near the warehouse that lined the Singapore River, banks and financiers had easy access to their clients, such as shipping firms and warehouse owners who required said financing and insurance services. I think this is a super interesting part because you can just imagine on the Singapore River where now you have all the bars in Clark Key, right? Or Boat Key. These were actually where you had some of your major financiers, right? They were just like waiting there whenever a shipment would come in, they would like offer trade financing and that was really what was the roots are, are the bars still alive we can only hope bro the big UOB tower there and actually all the banks are still near Raffles City it's still kind of a good symbol I would say it kind of is a throwback to how some of the earliest financiers were around the Singapore River for people that don't know UOB owns the whole Boat Key stretch Oh, I didn't know that. Every sing- I think almost every single shop house is owned by UOB, yes. So the whole of Boat Key is owned by UOB, yes. I only know that Elliot has a very close relationship with the Singapore River. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a very... You mean like you jump into the river, is it? Like close relationship? <laughs> <laughs> you know, your past life, right? So I assume you have this kind of... He was, uh, he was a fish. I, I was born part of it. Uh, actually, I was off the boats in my past life. <laughs> wait, wait. Am I supposed to take you seriously on this? No, 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 no. <laughs> When we think back about it, like I think it was only with independence that Singapore's development as a global financial center really took place, right? And with the government taking active steps towards establishing like a financial service industry in Singapore, uh, it was Singapore's then economic advisor, Dr. Albert Winsimius, who first suggested that Singapore's strategic time zone could allow it to fill in a gap in global trading hours, which is to me this is a very interesting thought. Uh, who would have who would have decided that oh because of where we are in the time zone that would make us uh, so-called great. Uh, this led to the establishment of an Asian dollar market or an ADM in 1968, which aimed to bridge a gap between the close of American markets and the opening of European markets on the following day. I had to do some research on like the ADM. The ADM would lay this like foundation for banking and finance in Singapore with the Asian currency unit, all known as the ACU, that was established along with the ADM allowing for the participation of foreign banks and financial institutions in Singapore's financial service sectors. Now, most banks in Singapore operate both a domestic banking unit, like we'll call it a DPU, and an Asian currency unit, an ACU. Uh, The segregation between the ACU and the DPU within a bank is essentially only in accounting terms. So, you know, uh, give you an example, the the ACU and DPU are but separate accounting books. So it's it's still the same operation, just that we'll split it into uh, two different accounting books. Uh, Banks are allowed to deal with any currency in the DPU. uh, And in the ACU, they are allowed to deal in all currencies except for SGD. Right, so the ACU is subject to fewer regulatory rules and requirements than the DBU, uh, while the banks are therefore able to accept non-SGD deposits and lend out non-SGD funds more freely through the ACU. As such, the Singapore government has, from the start, seen the financial service industry not simply as a means for supporting the development of other existing industries, but as growth industries in its own right. When I first read this in our show notes, right, I was confused. I had really no idea what's going on. And it... Rovic forced me to go and dig deeper because he just threw this here on a piece of paper, right? Wow. And actually, it's interesting that we can plug and play into these like multi-currency type platforms also due to, to things like this. The idea here is that basically there is a a line between your accounts that hold SGD and your accounts that are purely multi-currency. And that's because they don't want the currency risk of other things affecting the Singapore dollar, right? Singapore has always protected the Singapore dollar as, as a currency. But when you play pure multi-currency, yeah, you can do whatever you want within the lower regulatory restrictions. And it's supposed to facilitate, as you mentioned, some of this currency uh, activity from Singapore. And so I think the fact that we are able to have access to multi-currency accounts, have access to all these kind of different operations within the same institution, I think is uh, one of the the early innovations of Singapore's financial system. Over time, I think what Singapore really did was to make it a little bit more structured. There is a narrative being part, you know, we fishing village, then we raise a country as like rubbish, fishing village. There's something that we always thought in social studies, honestly, right? It's like, oh, Singapore, very humble fishing village. I want to plug a book that I think uh, more Singaporeans are going to take a read okay it's called colonialism in the malay archipelago okay so this book written by osman bakar ahmad murad marikan 
One Ali, One Mamat. Okay, so I think this, I, I picked up this book at one of the bookshops in Haji Lane area. Right, so, and it, it was amazing because as a Singaporean, like what what Elliot said, right? In social studies, you, you have this narrative that's being peddled. You know, we are from nothing, blah, blah, blah. But when I read the book, I think it laid out a lot of historical situations. What happened in the past? This, 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 this. And yeah, it kind of paint me a clearer picture why all these colonial powers came in, what we were doing before and what happened after, right? So I think this was a, a much clearer view of why Singapore can be a financial hub today. Not so much, you know, we didn't really make it happen in 50 years, guys, right? So I, I think that's important to, to recognize, yes. I guess one of the things that did happen in the last 50 years was the development of institutions, right? Yes, and we did. These, mm. these are a modern economy kind of, of development. And yes. as Singapore's financial services industry grew increasingly complex and internationalized with both the proliferation of domestic financial institutions, so your DPS, OCBC, etc., and the entry of foreign financial institutions, there emerged a growing need for a more consolidated approach to governing and regulating these firms and entities. So in response, the Monetary Authority of Singapore Act was enacted in 1971, allowing for the formation of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is the MAS. And it plays dual roles of both a central bank and a financial regulator. The other big institution is the Stock Exchange of Singapore, which was established in 1973, so two years later. And it was supposed to allow companies to raise capital through the equity capital market. Uh, It was subsequently demutualized and merged with the Singapore International Monetary Exchange to form what we now know as the Singapore Exchange. And this was in response to the growing depth and diversity of Singapore's capital markets. And so the two big institutions are the MAS and the Stock Exchange of Singapore. They are supposed to help kind of provide some structure, some organization, some facilitation to the financial markets. Why, why are institutions important to a financial hub? Oh, I, th- I think this is important for sure. Because when you institutionalize, you set the tone, right? You set the regulatory framework, you set the basis of how people operate, right? So although I keep talking about the past, but in the past, it's probably a lot a lot messier than what it is today, right? So organizing it helps it to scale, helps it to grow. And if you think about it, right? And even the name, SGX, you know, MAS, SDAG, and what have you, right? It's it's all it's all a copy from the US. Right? So the US was in the in the height of, of its financial situation. It grew and everybody started to emulate it so that you can be more tied into the US uh, situation, right? With with especially with the established institutions. And that really creates a stable framework for other people to play with right so i think institutions have their game to play so i'm not the kind that it's like anti-institutions but i do think that as the game changes you know with with all these like cryptography with cryptocurrencies coming in with um all the new kind of financial hubs going like Luxembourg is quite a new financial hub, right? It used to be from Switzerland, right? And uh, even in, in Singapore, we are still the strongest within the region, but Hong Kong is growing and Shanghai is growing, Shenzhen is growing massively, right? So uh, with all these guys growing, uh, we need to keep up and we need to change. So institutions are important. They set the tone, but institutions also create a, another problem, much like much like any other thing when there's a huge behemoth in, in the in the space, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it slows the, the change, it slows it down, right? So that is something that uh, yeah, we, we, we should know and be aware of. Yeah, I think that's an important tension point actually about any financial services sector, which is that tension between speed and convenience and trust and certainty, right? And you want you want a healthy balance between both because a system that doesn't have trust and certainty, that's just all chaos, uh, people wouldn't want to put their money in it. And you are seeing some of that with some of the financial hubs out there where there's some you know, geopolitical tensions or regulatory risk. And then on the other hand, uh, you don't want it to be over-regulated and too restrictive because then you aren't able to, to maybe have some level of financial innovation, some level of, of speed and certainty. One, some could argue that some of the crisis that happened in in the financial services sector in the past few decades was because there was not enough regulation. Some argue it's because there's too much regulation. So it's a very interesting perennial tension within the financial space. I would say Singapore's um, institutions are pretty liberal. They're pretty open. You know, financial institutions specifically, okay, let me clarify. Huh? Singapore's financial institutions are pretty open. Like we have some of the most... Um, 
relaxed laws when it comes to the cryptocurrency market. Um, we are opening up a lot of digital bank licenses. Although digital banking licenses, we are a little bit slow to the game. But once we open, we are opening quite a bit. Right. So that is something that I think we need to recognize. We may be a little bit too protective of some of our big uh, banks in the past. Right. Because I think they do have lobby power in, in here. Although, you know, it's like lobby is very different from the US, but because they have a lot of financial interests, you know, they, they talk to the governance and all that. So they're very active in trying to protect themselves. But yeah, I, I do think some of the financial institution here have, have done is to, you know, create a sandbox, open up the digital, the digital banking license, and also welcoming more of these uh, cryptocurrency companies to come in with uh, more relaxed laws as all these other countries are clamping down on them. So Singapore's uh, financial institutions are actually pretty open-minded. Yeah. The ability to have a healthy personal finance system requires some level of a macro financial system, right? And and I think that's why we're, we're, we, we see the relationship here between what you guys are doing at the financial coconut and what we're trying to explore in this episode. That is an important point, right? Because in Singapore, you can easily get access to the US markets. You can get easy access to Hong Kong, Shanghai, a lot of different places. And and that is all built on the backbone of Singapore's financial institutions and its its regulatory arrangement with all these different other countries because of its reliability. I mean, I'm just across the straits. Okay, I have friends in Malaysia. Okay, by the way, I'm not an anti-Malaysian. You know, I'm a very... I'm cool on both ends. Okay, I live in Subang for a period of time, right? So the the whole Singapore Malaysia Nasi Lemak War, I'm not part of it. Okay, but <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm not part of that discussion. And you know, uh, but the the idea is, I had friends that was living in KL and they struggle to open up more international brokerage arrangements where they can have easy access to buy different companies from different places. And it's not even the same provider. Like you can be using the same provider IBKR uh, on both in different countries, but because of your tax residence, because because of where you are and all that, uh, it also limits your exposure to your access of different different tools. So Singapore has done a great job in allowing Singaporeans to you know invest abroad and do all these things. So you should capitalize on it. Right? We can we can talk about that later. So before we go to the break, I think it's important to point out the 1980s and 1990s as a unique decade because this was when the financial services industry actually experienced a really good period of internationalization and diversification. And this began in the aftermath of the 1984-1985 recession, right, which really shook the country up. And there was an economic review committee that identified seven areas of growth for Singapore's financial sector. This included risk management, fund management, capital markets, unlisted securities markets, financial and commodity futures, and markets for the financing of third country trading and reinsurance. It was also during the 1980s that Singapore's asset management industry, which is one of our uh, most evolved and mature industries actually first emerged. And this was driven by government incentives and leveraging on the rapid expansion in size and diversity of our financial markets. The asset management industry has since become a key growth sector for Singapore. The financial market liberalization also gave rise to increased participation by foreign banks and financial institutions in the financial market. So you had banks from the US, you had banks from Japan, banks from all parts of the world actually coming in. And policymakers saw an increased need to expand the size and capacity of local banks to ensure their global competitiveness. And this led to a period of rationalization and consolidation under the encouragement of the advice of MES. And we saw this actually, Elliot, in our episode on the POSB, because we saw how the DBS and POSB merged. And this was actually because of a similar kind of trajectory where smaller local banks were merged uh, to basically take over fragmented brokerage systems. And this was where we we saw PSB and DBS kind of merged. This was also where OUB, which is an overseas union bank, was merged into the United Overseas Bank, UOB. And in view of an increasingly diverse and integrated financial sector, the MAS sought to consolidate its policy rules by emphasizing two main trusts of financial sector regulation and promotion. So you had one side that was doing regulation and the other one, which was uh, industry development and promotion. And this involved organizational restructuring in 1997, which involved the formation of a financial sector promotion department. And you had uh, the more traditional regulatory team, right? And this was supposed to be essential in developing Singapore as a leading international financial center. So it's very exciting, actually, the 1980s and 1990s were, were where I would say the most decisive actions, right, uh, intentional by the government and, and kind of sector strategy work came in to really put Singapore on the map as a, as a regional financial center. I'm sure at that time they were thinking of to be a global financial center. It's 
I guess why we have such a mature financial sector. We'll kind of explore the different elements later on. And so I think that's very exciting. We will find out more about these different elements right after the break, and we'll be back very soon. We're glad you're listening to this episode and are part of the SG Explainers community. You're special because you're part of a group of people who are joining us to understand the Singaporean identity through a wide variety of topics. Elliot and I do this completely out of passion, but we do incur costs to use software, equipment, and not to mention the time spent. We're hoping that you may consider supporting the SG Explain effort in one of two ways. If you click on the podcast description of the podcast you're listening to, you'll see a link that says support this podcast with a link to anchor.fm slash sg dash explain slash support. A contribution as small as 99 cents when added up by all our community members can go a long way for us. The second way is that if you want more bonus content for your buck, we've launched an email newsletter. That's right, all the content that doesn't make it to the podcast, including our own perspectives, videos and pictures, as well as links to more resources can be found in these email digests that provide compact information for your on-the-go reading. For $5 US a month, basically the cost of a bubble tea, through Substack you can get a digest a week with great content. The internet has allowed you, the consumer, to directly express your support to creators like us without needing to depend on brand sponsors too much. We hope you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. Here at SG Explain, Elliot and I are committed to getting great guests, conducting thorough research, and bringing you quality explainers on all things Singaporean. Thank you for being part of our community. And we're back from the break. So in the first part, we kind of defined what a financial hub and sector is. We kind of looked at how it, Singapore became a financial hub and sector. In this section, we're actually going to look at the different elements of our financial hub, as well as have an open discussion about you know, where we're going, what are some of our strengths, what are some of our quote-unquote areas for improvement, right? I think we can just say weakness, but and, <laughs> and, and open conversation about our financial hub status. There are actually different elements, different building blocks we've shortlisted for to talk about today. So the first one is our classic banking and finance. So this is, this is not surprising, right? We need banks in order to do most of the financial activities that we want. Singapore has had a key regional and global role as a major banking hub for a while. Uh, according to the MAS, banks in Singapore held a total of $2 trillion in assets, two, U.S. $2 trillion in assets. We have a total of 126 commercial banks. I didn't even know we had that many. I just know my, so uh, many banks, <laughs> yeah. of which five are local and 121 are foreign banks. And I think, Elliot, the reason why, there's, why we don't know so many of them is because of these foreign banks, only 29 are full banks, 55 are wholesale banks, uh, which basically don't do Singapore dollar retail services, right? They focus more on international markets. And then 37 are offshore banks, which means that they completely only service foreign clients. And in particular, Singapore's three largest local banks, DBS, UOB, and OCBC, have been actually ranked among the world's strongest and most valuable banking brands. I, I always kind of enjoy it when I go to other countries and I see a DBS you know, building or a UOB building because it's like, yeah, that's you know us out there. It's recognizable. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. And the banking sector, as we talked about, has contributed to trade activities corporate finance and the building of infrastructure, but it's also faced regulatory challenges in terms of money laundering and interest rate manipulation, both of which have prompted strong regulatory responses from MES. I think these pieces are, are interesting because I think, especially when you look at some of the global financial scandals that have happened, actually sometimes Singapore banks get implicated. I'm not sure if you've noticed. <laughs> and they'll always say, sorry, like the, the money that we're, that we're working here with is fungible. So the same dollar that you used for something uh, here can be the same dollar used for something there and you can't actually trace like oh was it used for money laundering right but and that's a that's a basically example that most banks kind of provide but i also <laughs> think it's there's, there's some question of like well you know 
at the end of the day, you want as much money to go through you as possible because you earn on all the on incentive the structures, man. Yeah. The, the part about Singapore having a lot of banks, yes, I think much like Ali, I think a lot of people will be lost. Like, huh, we have so many banks. Uh, the reality is, yes, we do have a lot of banks around and they may have like some office, you know, a, a stretch of office in Shenton Way. And then, you know, they have no logos around and all that, right? So they're not full banks. They don't operate here. You don't interact with them at all. That means they have no offices. They, they have no like retail, retail offices. They have no ATMs, none of those things. But um, most of the full banks people will know, especially the bigger ones. You know, but there are also a lot like the Bank of Bangkok, Bank of India, you know, China is a BOC and they're all here and they are full banks. So those are interesting things. And you will start to see a lot of these um, new Asian financial giants. They have huge infrastructure, also banking infrastructure, and they will set up here and they will have all the full banking license. For a lot of my friends that work in the Ministry of Trade, Actually, full banking license is one of those things that they use to kind of negotiate with some of these big boys. Right? So um, it is a very complicated discussion because my friends that work in the trade, they say that Singapore don't have a lot of things to negotiate. La. So, you know, we, we must hold on to this, you know, in a very tight fashion. We cannot just anyhow give people a full banking license. But that's an interesting thing to note, right? But if you look at the local situation where you have very big boys dominating DBS, UOB, OCBC, over time, they become a bit lazy in my view. All right, they become a little bit lazy. They're not as innovative. They're not creating as new products. There's a lot of patchwork, you know, and it's not unique to them, typical to a lot of big organizations, but it's definitely impede a lot of innovation going forward. It's only in the recent three or four or five years that you're starting to see a lot more new guys challenging them. Um, and they're kind of like scraping off their businesses <laughs> and all that. So I would say a lot of the local banks are facing competition left, right, center. But even with all these competition, they are all still, all these new guys are still part of the banking finance sector and it's still adding to the vibrancy of the space. That's why DBS has pay la now. La. Yeah, la, finally. La. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the next area of focus here, which is on asset management. So Singapore has emerged to become a leading asset management center in Asia. In 2015, assets under management or AUM in Singapore amounted to 2.6 trillion SGD, a 9% growth of the year before. These assets were managed by the 628 registered and licensed fund managers, some of whom operated within the 270 fund management companies registered in the MAS's financial directory. 270 fund management companies sound like a lot, you know, and I've, I only know like a couple of them or at least only a couple have commercially approached Wait, us. There are, there are actually a lot of micro funds out there if you didn't know. Like under this fund management companies, they are the licensed ones, right? But... You, me, Rovic, we can actually set up a fund under them. Yeah, so we can borrow their license in that sense. So we become a sub-fund under this fund management company. So we don't need to go through the license and all that jazz. We just work with their regulation. We work with their structures. And of course, they will take a, a cut out of all our work. You know, And so there are actually a lot of small little funds around that people don't know. Yeah, so they don't go they don't go around getting retail money, but hey, they are around a lot, a lot of them. Two people, three people, fund office. I've always struggled with this, right? What exactly do fund managers or asset managers do? <laughs> yeah, so the fund managers uh, essentially they take they collect the money. So there are two portions, right? One portion is they collect the money, the other portion is they decide where to put the money. Right, pretty much this is their two functions, right? So collecting money, in a sense, they have to do the salesy work, right? They go out and tell people, you know, this is our investment thesis, this is what we are trying to do, blah, 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 blah. And you'll be surprised. All sorts of theses will find its own lover, okay? There will be investors <laughs> that invest in all sorts of stuff. So some people can be doing fine art, which is a huge and growing market. Some people can be doing wine, some of these private placements that are not as popular. Some people can just be doing derivatives. So depending on the different, different investment theses that this fund may Managers have created, they will build this deck and go around, you know, collecting money. <laughs> and, so, and with that money, they, they will, you know, put the money into the investment strategy that they have told their investors. So pretty much that's the idea, right? That's all they do. And as an investor, you wait and see if the investment thesis play out. Like. If it plays out, you make profit. If it does not play out, then uh, you try again. No? Do, do like those online, like, you know, like Scythe and all this kind of stuff, the robo, the robo style. Um, yes. 
yeah, investment platforms. Do they count under this? Do you- under strict legislative frameworks, they are not considered fund managers. So they have a different license structure. They are under the same licensing structure as financial planners. Oh, okay. okay so okay. It's, a, it's a different thing altogether. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that is the arrangement. So what they do is they collect your money, but then when they invest in, in uh, they put your money into different, different funds. Right. So if you think about it, they are one layer above the fund managers. Right. So they will give the money essentially to the different fund managers and then the fund manager will invest based on They're basically like a broker. They are an in-between person that does the taking money piece, but then they will work with a set of fund managers that maybe want to focus more on like managing the fund or, yes. you know, they work with a different set of like channel distributors or brokers to, to kind of get the capital for their funds. Yes, yes, yes. So essentially within the fund managers business, the part of getting money, this is the part where a lot of these robo advisors come in. They are part of their distribution network. Right. So yeah, that's, that's what it is. Thanks for clarifying that. Well, I guess more importantly, like Singapore was first emerging to become like a leading regional and global asset management center, right? You know, and that, that played an important role in mediating global flows of private investments. Uh, 80% of Singapore's AUMs are sourced from outside the country with 68% of all AUMs invested in the Asia Pacific area. Now that, that seems like a huge number for me to say like, it's not locally sourced at the very least, like only 20% comes from, uh, from locals. Now this brings back to the very, very opening that we were talking about that there are different kind of financial hubs, right? So the international financial hubs is where local capital is at, which is why Japan, Tokyo, you know, US or London, you know, some of these places, they have very old wealth. They have, they have gathered a lot, a lot of money through their businesses, their innovation, their technology. So those local capital, which is, you know, from the place, they have that kind of money within their, their, their space. But Singapore being a regional financial hub, most of our money are regional. We take money from other people. Essentially, we, we manage them. All right. So that is the situation here, especially for a lot of regional financial hub, Hong Kong, Luxembourg, they're all the same, Estonia, uh, whatever you, right? So they are, developing a lot of the they're managing a lot of the money that is not born out of the place itself all right so that's something to to note and be aware of asset management is a great business whether is it from the asset manager or whether is it from um the the country in itself right because when you have a lot of money sitting around you can tax all this money great good stuff right you can hire a lot of people because singapore does not really tax the money as much okay okay we can clarify some of these things later because the tax structure is different but when you set up offices here you hire the locals all that just the trickle down economic effect okay this one also questionable i know we can we can talk about this it gets, it gets complicated but why asset management is a thriving business because the incentive structures built within the asset manager are amazing okay they take a flat fee of about two percent or one percent to two percent just to manage your funds so i saw all the money that is within their their funds uh, they charge you one to two percent annually right so that is already the the flat fee but they also take a profit sharing structure on top of that so they take an average of 20 to 40 percent of profit sharing so if they help you make money every dollar on top of the management fee that they charge you they will charge you even more Right, so because of the incentive structures, they actually are very rigorous and they, they, they work very hard to make all the money. So yeah, it is not as simple as you know just broadly diversified and you know <laughs> index funds. Right. So it's a lot more complicated and because of the complexity and the kind of incentive structure that's being built, it is a growing business space, even for the big banks. So amongst all the big banks, their banking services is shrinking because all these fintech guys are attacking them, but they are trying very hard to be you know, more dominant within the asset management space. Yeah, and I think even like the banking sector, Singapore's asset management sector has faced regulatory challenges such as tax evasion. And this has also caused regulatory reform between cooperation, actually, between MAS and other financial regulators. So you're absolutely right that this space is is growing. It's, it's very attractive, but I guess it's also... Uh, it has a huge kind of confluence with tax structures and all this kind of stuff and, and yes. probably worth worth unpacking maybe not in this episode but uh, in 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 somewhere more technical maybe maybe in financial coconut will speak <laughs> this is why we do as you explained though so that we can like simplify some of these topics we've done so many episodes right Rovic I don't think my brain has ever been like 
as incomprehensive as it is right now. Yeah, it's okay. We still love you, bro. Yeah. Hey, yeah thanks, yeah, thanks, good, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Can, listeners, thanks for empathizing with me sometimes. <laughs> so, like, I, I know you guys see me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the third element of our financial hub which is our capital markets. Singapore's position as a major financial hub has depended on its deep and liquid capital markets with the market for bonds, equity capital, foreign exchange, and over-the-counter derivatives particularly prominent. These are all basically what you can consider financing tools, right? Different ways of putting in finance into an ecosystem. In terms of bonds, total debt issued in 2015 amounted to around 174 billion SGD. Uh, and this both comprised of SGD denominated and non-SGD denominated debt, which is basically, you know, emblematic of our pool of local and foreign issuers, uh, meaning people from all over the world are giving us debt. This diverse range of debt issuances and issuers, again, establishes Singapore's position as an international fixed income hub with non-SGD debt increasingly crucial in Singapore's role as a multi-currency fixed income hub. Over here, maybe we'll pause and talk about like what debt means, right? Debt is not a bad word. I think we tend to think of debt as a bad word because it's always not good to be stuck in debt, right? You don't want to like continue like owing someone money but actually debt is a useful way to finance something if you don't have capital yourself right uh just because you don't have money but you want to let's say start a company or you want to you know take a risk and 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 make a venture uh actually sometimes you need money you need capital and the best way to do that is to borrow uh execute on that uh venture earn higher above returns than what you normally do in like let's say regular investing and then pay back your debt and keep the, the incremental, right? So that's the concept, and actually, that as as a way of getting access to capital is a is a very important way to do that. Of course, as we said, there are other ways to do it, like equity capital as well. In terms of debt, you need people with different risk profiles as well, which is why having foreign issuers who probably maybe have different risk profiles, but maybe have access to more money, right? Or maybe they have an interest to invest into Asia, right? Uh, this is their way to get access to their capital. And, and and that's why I think capital markets are important. So our equity capital market has been known to be one of the most established Asia-Pacific region with close to 800 companies listed on the SGX and average daily securities turnover exceeding around $1.09 billion in 2016. Uh, it's highly internationalized with foreign companies making up 40% of its listings. Again, these are 2016 numbers, uh, but it's also been plagued by local trade volumes and has been adversely affected affected by volatility in regional and global markets. And I think let's talk a bit about why it's struggling these days to like actually have people listed on it. I know a lot of local companies are even thinking of like delisting and listing somewhere else. One of the reasons that I found was because actually the internationalization policy of the Singapore dollar. So the idea is that actually the MAS uses the exchange rate as a principal tool of monetary policy. We don't control the interest rate. And actually, if you do basic economics, you'll know the difference between an interest rate policy and an exchange rate policy. An interest rate policy makes sense if you have a high domestic capital sector and and because of that, then by adjusting the interest rate, you can adjust actually the amount of currency in the market. But actually, when most of your economy is dependent on international trade and international activities, then then it doesn't really matter what the interest rate is domestically. That's why our interest rates have plunged pretty low. It actually matters more what our exchange rate is as a way to control the value of our dollar. And so at the same time, the MAS also doesn't want too many people outside of Singapore to hold the Singapore dollar because that provides a risk, right? Like someone could just basically hold Singapore ransom. So uh, the policy of using the exchange rate has been basically looking at ensuring the growth of the SGD market is commensurate with the development of the economy. There's no like, uh, you know, human intervention to kind of distort that. And the conduct of MAS's monetary policy is not compromised. But they, they have these safeguards where you don't internationalize the Singapore dollar because they don't want that exposure. And because of that, you don't have people outside of Singapore holding the Singapore dollar. And because of that, then your ability to actually tap on that capital market, uh, in particular the bond markets, is limited because when you when people don't hold on to the Singapore dollar, you can't ask them for that Singapore dollar to finance stuff. Now, it's possible to convert any of your currency to Singapore dollar and then trade it within a Singapore institution. That's why we have all these, you know, offshore functions within our banks. It's possible to do that, but people just don't know about it, right? Or they don't understand the policy. It's too complicated. Whereas over here, you know, from Singapore, you can hold on to US dollar and you can do business with the US institutions from here, of course, with some regulatory constraints, but you can do it. 
right? Uh, the U.S. actually internationalizes its U.S. dollar policy pretty widely. That makes so much sense, actually. Yeah, that makes so much sense for me personally, right? Because like I, I, I trade a lot like on like New York Stock Exchange, for example, uh, and it's easy for me to do so without like that. Uh, I would say the regulation isn't as complicated as say uh, what what you're explaining here for the Singapore Stock Exchange. I would say the Singapore Exchange is is a bit old. <laughs> In the way, in the way that they look at, they're not old in the sense that they are like very long standing, but they're old in the way in um, how they're looking at a stock exchange. All right, so even some of the biggest companies, they're not listing here, like Razer, Shopee, you know, which is uh, part of the whole C Limited group. Uh, some of these like bigger, you know, new edge companies, they're all listing in the US, they're listing in Hong Kong, they're listing elsewhere, okay? And there are a few reasons, right? What are the main reason to list in the US is because the US stock exchanges, they pay a premium for a lot of these new growth companies, right? Because they appreciate the kind of growth, they appreciate the kind of risk that they could ride out and all that jazz, right? So all the world's biggest, com- uh, latest upcoming tech companies, a lot of them are listing the US because the US exchange pays a premium. The investors there are used to it. Whereas in Singapore, uh, yeah, we barely, we're struggling. <laughs> the Singapore exchange is struggling to get new, exciting, interesting companies. And it is a flywheel issue, right? If you don't have interesting, exciting companies that are listing in the exchange, then there will be no you know, new capital that wants to seek out all these kind of interesting companies to come into the exchange. So if you, if you, if that flywheel doesn't kind of kick off, then it will forever be this sleeping capital market that is not as exciting. Like, like we have established Singapore is a financial hub. There are different, different business functions. And I would say the capital markets is one of the least exciting uh, business functions in the financial hub today. Yeah, that is my view. Even our bond market is very small. And um, I think we are changing a little bit. We are issuing more Singapore denominated debt, you know, with the green bonds and some of these other infrastructure development bonds. Um, and there is a demand, you know, for our bonds for a reason, right? Because we are financially, we are very strong. You know, our finances are intact. We have huge reserves, relatively stable and all that stuff, right? So there's a huge demand, but like what Rovig has pointed out, if more and more people are buying all these kind of debt, then they will have more influence in our uh, FX rates and they will have more influence in our capital markets, right? So th- those are a, a give and take. But as of now, you know, <laughs> I would say you invest, as a retail investor, you invest in SGX really for the kind of dividend paying giants uh, because we don't tax dividends. But nothing, nothing really exciting and yeah, that's that's my my take. I would say as a financial hub, I think people want uh, an exciting you know stock exchange because I think mm. that's where you see a lot of the growth, innovation, I and know, right? stuff like that. And it's it's just something that if a financial hub doesn't have, it kind of feels like lackadaisical. Yeah, uh, yeah, which yeah. Which is why, which is why I think Singapore also has a bit of a of a reputational issue there as well, which it we'll is, talk about is. later on. It is. As, as, I mean, you, we have all these money coming into Singapore, but actually a lot of them are not invested here. So we are just facilitating all these exchanges and we definitely should try to crack our head to see how we can put more money here, like like actually invest in our capital markets, invest in our exchanges, invest in the physical, you know, local businesses that we can we can do something about, right? But um that is not really happening. We're seeing a lot of money transacting hands here because of our exchange, because of our ability to easily move around different, different uh, currencies and, and all that jazz. But a lot of the money are just really passing by law. We're like a pot again, even for money. <laughs> so so I, I definitely would hope that we we try, we work harder towards uh, localizing a lot of these foreign capital to try to invest in our you know, in Singapore itself, I think that's important for us. Under capital markets, there's one last piece around foreign currency. Singapore has become the largest foreign exchange center in Asia Pacific region, ranks third in the world behind London and New York. And in 2016, average daily trading volume mounted to 705 billion Singapore dollars, with Singapore's share of global foreign exchange rising to 7.9%. Uh, our position as a global hub for foreign currency has also been beneficial for its emerging role as an offshore renminbi center, as China's 
seeks to internationalize its currency, right? And China is basically taking a similar approach, uh, not not exactly the same, similar approach to the U.S., where by internationalizing its currency, it gets to increase its influence, uh, more Chinese-denominated investment or financial activities out there, and that kind of allows it to also take uh, get access to a larger pool of capital. So I think this is it's a very interesting thing that Singapore is trying to take advantage of, I guess, because of time zone proximity, a lot of the intrinsic advantages that we talked about. Our last, our last one we're going to talk about right now is on insurance. Now, this one, I probably have a better grasp of it because I'm very well insured. Hey, you pay a lot of insurance doesn't mean you're very well insured, huh? <laughs> huh? What? Hey, hey. pay a lot of insurance because insurance is a product, right? It does not mean you pay a lot for the product. It means you are considered well insured. Actually, you're, you're, you're ruining my dreams here, bro. Like, you're killing me. <laughs> have, I, have I shaken you on the point before you even made the point? <laughs> yeah, uh, now, now I'm just scared that uh, I've bought into the wrong products, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 Singapore's insurance sector started off, you know, servicing domestic business needs. Uh, liberalization of the sector by the MAS in 2000 has since led to like this emergence of offshore insurance businesses and reinsurance activities. Uh, facilitating Singapore's role as like a regional insurance hub. Now, the sector has since taken off with Singapore becoming a top insurance and reinsurance hub in Asia and total insurance premiums rising to 3.6 billion SGD in 2015. Much of this growth has been attributed to Asia's continued economic performance, its aging population, and its increased onset of natural catastrophes. A total of 182 licensed insurers piled their trade in Singapore, including 80 direct insurers, of which 17 are life insurers, 56 are general insurers, and 7 are composite insurers, and 31 other reinsurers. Uh, aside from market size, the insurance sector has also experienced a considerable extent of diversification with insurance services offered, including general insurance, life, reinsurance, captive, uh, captive insurance, and insurance intermediaries. Many of these services contributed to overall economic growth and or, or you know, impacted the other financial markets and sectors by intermediating regional insurance businesses, uh, redistributing risks and providing risk advisory services. So my takeaway of this is that we are really like providing a very strong service here in Singapore uh, based on the amount of products or insurance products that we're actually providing uh, and the kind of coverage that we're willing to take on as risk. Because that's what insurance is essentially, right? It's like I'm you pay me a premium and then I take on some of that risk for you just in case something happens in the future. You know, let's talk about growth areas and specifically family offices and fintech. Yeah, uh, Reggie, you know, can you describe what the impact to Singapore's status as a financial hub are, knowing knowing what we know today? Family offices are amazing, by the way. Just saying, we are. I think we are growing like what fifty family offices every week or something, uh, something along those lines. Okay, I I I I, don't, I need to clarify my numbers, but I've heard a lot, especially from my friends that are working in this space. Right, so family offices essentially is a lot of these rich guys coming in. They set up. Their trust funds, they set up a company here to put their money here. So they use the financial system here to essentially build up that whole infrastructure of their own personal finances. But it's become so big that you cannot call it personal finance anymore. You call it family finances. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that is uh, something interesting. And we are doing a lot of those things, especially with the growth of uh, Asia as a, as a market, right? Because as more and more Asians kind of grow uh, different different countries, they want to put their money somewhere and they want to structure it in a tax-optimized form with a bigger reach. So family offices in Singapore is interesting. But fintech is a part that I think more and more people are having closer interaction with because family office is very far-fetched. Huh? But fintech is what we are, a lot of us are using, right? We use uh, digital brokers. We use digital robo-advisors. Robo we use... Uh, even like Wise or Utrip or Revolut, you know, a lot of these kind of digital payments. Yeah, that's ecosystem. me. That's me. I use those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and that's amazing because I because we run a company also, right? On 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 my end, we run a company and we use all these things, right? Wise, we use all these different uh, digital infrastructures that are better UI, better UX, better rates, you know, and and it is essentially eating into the traditional bank's business because as all these tech giants come in, they lean down the processes, they hire less people and they use technology to replace all the middle management, right? So that is amazingly powerful and you can see as smaller business owners or as, you know, people that are starting out, 
uh, it has a lot of advantage for us, right? But from a bigger country standpoint, I think it's very hard to tell yet because all these guys are eating the businesses of the big banks and they are eating it in a reduced margin arrangement, right? Because it's cheaper, that's why you use them, uh, right? But will will it overall welcome more volume into the space? Uh, this is a, a big question mark that we'll definitely have to see how it plays out. But hey, but shout out to all you young people trying to set up a business, you know, or trying to be more global as an individual you don't speak all... as if you're not young la, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not young yeah shout out to us, us you know, the, you know, young people setting up businesses and trying to, more, to go global as an individual and not be too overly localized uh, exploring a bigger global landscape of your playground then hey all these are great for all of us more power to you man yeah it sounds like family offices basically diversify the capital that we have so it's a different source of capital and then fintech is really about accessibility and innovation within the financial sector yeah and family offices have a very different goal compared to um, compared to a lot of these risk capital or a lot of these like bigger financial management companies right so family offices have a lot of to talk about tax optimization, wealth preservation, because they already make their money. Ma. If you know money, how to set up family office, right? So they already make their money. Their goal is not to like, you know, make a lot more money, but their goal is really just to kind of preserve a lot of the capital. But of course, that is not saying it's a blanket. Different different family offices have different goals, especially a lot of the tech uh, family offices, like, you know, Zuckerberg's office is here. You know, the Eduardo Severin, you know, a lot of these guys, they have family offices here. And because they are tech founders, they def- within their portfolio, usually there will be a portion of private capital that goes back into the tech space. So it depends on the different family offices, but generally it is uh, becoming a rich playground, lah, which which will extend into a long, long, long discussion about inequality and all that. <laughs> which is <laughs> that a we'll different do, episode. <laughs> a different episode, we'll do it another time, yes. So I think we've talked a lot about our financial hub status. We've identified some areas where we're really strong, some areas where we're not. So I'm curious, you know, do you think Singapore can ever become bigger than New York or London? as a financial hub or if not you know where can we play to win I guess so I think it's a bit hard because we have already established that New York and London are international financial hubs and what's the base idea the base idea is they have local capital so London has old wealth right the British was huge and London is not just managing the British wealth right maybe the whole of EU a lot of the financial processes are all linked back to London so the pound has its strength not from just London itself right but all your euro dollar actually they all translate to the pound and then they they go international to london right so which is a a whole different discussion of brexit and all that jazz so with a lot of of course the us we don't need to expand on right so the us is where a lot of the innovation and capital is at so because of all these kind of local capital arrangement that these guys have uh, i think it's very hard for singapore to overtake them right and if you talk about like asia's growth and all that hey shanghai is going to overtake singapore eventually Right. A lot of the wealth in Shanghai is going to be much bigger than Singapore. Tokyo is already way bigger. Right? Singapore just sounds huge because relative to our size, you know, we have a, a, lot, a lot of things going on. But a lot of these like big countries, big economies, they, they will stay that way and money will still be within their space. Um, so Singapore is very hard to overtake them, but we can always uh, continue to be the pot of money, right? continue to be the aggregator in the middle and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, there's still a part of the pie that we can eat. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But, but quite impossible to over overtake lah. Unless you know we we unite the whole ASEAN, then we come under one flag. And then that's a different discussion. Wow, Reggie, that's a <laughs> very, very uh big, big statement over here. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no government stunts. Uh, this is a random thought. Uh. I had it in my dreams. So it's just, uh, hey, I thought you were all about big statements today, Rovin. <laughs> <like. laughs> hey, you are the big statement guy on this podcast, right? Aren't you? <laughs> okay, 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 fine. You know, Reggie, you being the personal finance guy, how do you think all of this uh, affects the everyday person? So I think... Um, the first thing is access, right? Because we are hub, we have easy access to a lot of these products. Okay, but that is not to say that everybody has equal access. This is something that we need to clarify. Wealthier people definitely have more access, but even the re- because because of the kind of huge access across the board, even the retail individual like you and I, we have more access to all these different platforms and products also. 
right? So with more access, uh, gives you more room to play around and create new interesting things. But the idea is also uh, choice paralysis, right? Too much choices can affect you. <laughs> it makes it hard for people to to uh, decide how they want to do things. So yeah, I must check out our podcast, Shameless Plug, right? To to give <laughs> to give you more clarity, you know, to how to decide some of these things. So that is important. Uh, but also, I think inevitably because of the growing financial hub status, if you work within the financial uh, sector, it's going to be pretty beneficial for you. Uh, but I know not everybody wants to be in the financial space. You know, it's uh, yeah, like every day also seeing, right? being a cog in the system. I totally get that. But you got to recognize where you are. If you, if you choose to live in Singapore or if you choose to live in like Japan, then, you know, the whole artisan culture is huge, right? You could, you could become an artisan and do very well because of the whole structure that's being built there. But in Singapore, because of the kind of financial hub situation that we are, we have built, then, Hey, you want to, you know, grow and get high growth spaces, good employment. <laughs> yeah, financial hub is is a place to go. Yes. Well, my takeaway is actually just to keep an open mind and to keep your finger on the pulse. So, like, I'm not a super financially liter- literate person, right? I whatever I know, it's I always pick up from like friends, and I try to keep myself informed. If I don't know, I maybe Google a little bit. But every little bit helps. Just like having this discussion with you guys today, uh, really makes me like it can impact me in like an indirect way. But I wouldn't know about it if I'm not open to listen and to just find out a little bit more. Like I can't help it if finance is a dominant part of what makes you know our our life kind of works and the way it takes. Uh, but just being aware of it, I think is step number one. So um, trying to slowly ease our way to it. It's never too late, honestly, to kind of like pick up this sort of new uh, framework or mindset and how to approach personal finances. So I really appreciate you guys like sharing, talking, and even making it a little bit more layman. Yes, there's a lot of like, uh, no, uh, what's that? I mean, like that's regulation. Why we're here at bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, I, it's something I, I've learned throughout my entire time here. And as you explained, it's like something can be complicated. And yes, there are a lot of regulations that people, even in the industry themselves, might not be able to fully understand, right? The grasp of knowledge is, 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 is can be a, it can be a high barrier at times. Uh, but that's not to say that we shouldn't, you know, just close ourselves off to it keep an open mind keep a listening ear and then try to navigate based on the information you have you know even the little bit of information could go a long way yeah I, I think my my big takeaway is I actually enjoyed how Singapore as a financial hub actually builds on the same fundamentals that we that we like to celebrate about other things right like first of all our trade status that's kind of encouraged why we went into trade financing and insurance and all this kind of stuff so the fundamentals have existed even from pre-colonial days I liked how our openness and our access to to stuff beyond Singapore has also strengthened us and then of course the idea that actually it was a bit of a strategic you know uh, planning and alignment and and encouragement from uh, you know big players like the MAS that kind of put in the Lego pieces for us to really build a financial hub and then finally the fact that there's still a promising future right like the fact that fintech there's Singapore is, is home to a thriving fintech seat means that there's still a lot more to come our status as a financial hub uh, it's it's not just you know done and dusted there's, there's still a lot more that, that can come forward and I think that's exciting and all of that just makes it exciting for us to live in Singapore, right? It makes it, it makes the financial hub a bit more accessible to the identity. It makes it a lot less, you know, just something for rich people, but actually something that's that's and like pretty close to, to what it means to live in this country and live in this society. So. I think useful thing to complement our Nasi Lemak episodes or our Tita episodes, uh, valid uh, discussions on on all these different elements that actually do affect our daily life. And Reggie, thank you so much for coming on and like just chatting with us and helping us uh, not look stupid on this episode. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> oh my god, you guys are so smart. Come on, like, you've done so much study. It's great. Good stuff. <laughs> it's been great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, if you guys have not checked out the podcast, Peninsula Coconut Podcast, uh, hoping to help. You maneuver through all this complexity of personal finance. Yeah, that's it, man, guys. <laughs>